0: I was riding a snowmobile, got the track snowshoe hairs, got the check for Traps for Canada lynx, seeing what life's like in Montana, and then getting to know my advisor on a much more personal level than I did for lots of other schools that really sold me on on the program and on Scott as an advisor. But I came to the University of Montana um, for a conference, and they actually had a raffle at the conference to win a coffee date with the um, premier ecologist, one of the ones um, they had was Scott Mills. And I was fortunate to win the
1: raffle ticket to have the coffee date with him. We just clicked immediately. Scott and I had doubts that I would have a sample size needed to do this masters. But Scott kind of gave me a long leash. You know, he let me use my creativity and think of a way, you know, how can we get weasels on camera? How can we quantify the weasel cocoa mole? But now I've got weasels coming out of my ears. There's weasels on every kid, on every camera.
0: You just heard the voices of Alex Kumar, Jennifer Feltner, and Brandon Davis, graduate students in wildlife biology at the University of Montana, talking about their advisor, Scott Mills, our featured faculty guest on this episode of Confluence, where great ideas flow together, a podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. On Confluence, we take a long float with some of the best and brightest professors and graduate students who contribute to the watershed of wisdom that flows through our campus. I'm your host, Ashby Kinch, Associate Dean of the Graduate School, and I'm delighted to be guiding your sonic float today. Each episode, we gift our listeners a passage of poetry about rivers read by our guest. As Professor of Conservation Biology and Associate Vice President of Research for Global Change and Sustainability, Scott Mills thinks every day about the changes wrought by humans on the environment and what animals do about it. So we've selected a short passage from William Wordsworth's breathtaking lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey, where the speaker reflects on his youth as he returns with his sister to the banks of the River Wye, which has remained an inspiration for his love of nature. Here's Scott reading in Wordsworth's voice.
1: Nor perchance, if I were not thus taught, should I the more suffer my genial spirits to decay. For there are with me here on the, on the banks of this fair river Thou, my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend, and in thy voice I catch the language of my former heart and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes.
0: Wordsworth's poem offers a deep meditation on change and what that change means in the context of our human values. For Wordsworth, that was the impact of industrialization, including the ironworks just down the road in Tintern. For Scott Mills, climate change is the context, but he never lets his genial spirits decay. Scott has a worldwide reputation in conservation biology for his groundbreaking work on real-time evolutionary adaptation of animals responding to climate change. Here in western Montana, we can see the effects of climate change directly as the snow line creeps up the mountains surrounding our valley every year. Imagine being a snowshoe hare living in those brown hills when your coat has already changed to white, standing out against that brown background as easy prey for mountain lions. These are the dilemmas of biological life in an age of climate change, and Scott's lab has been producing transformative research describing how animals have adapted with major publications in science and nature. In our discussion, we explore Scott's path to becoming a research professor, his attraction to Montana, and his ideas about graduate study, interdisciplinarity, and international collaboration. Many of his students have had successful research careers in a wide range of fields, and this interview will give listeners a strong sense of why that's true. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Scott Mills. Welcome to Confluence. Thank yeah. you first, just for joining me and and you know agreeing to talk with us. Oh, <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about yourself i mean how did you come to choose this field how did How did this profession evolve? It's kind of a weird job right I mean yeah it's, it's not a, it's not yeah. a normal job it's not yeah. kind a of thing like uh, an eight year old kid yeah. you know what do you want to be? Uh, I want to be a conservation biologist yeah. right so yeah. how did it come? How did that evolve?
1: So I actually knew I actually'm a little unusual and that I probably knew uh, earlier than most. I knew when I started college that I wanted to do to be involved in some career that had to do with wild animals, I thought it was a veterinarian. So Mm -hmm. I I was a zoology major with the intent to be a wildlife veterinarian from the very beginning as an undergrad. And then, and actually what happened was I was in the SCA program, um, Student Conservation Association program as a sophomore in college and went out to Olympic National Park as a North Carolina kid to work uh, on a mountain goat project And I just loved it. And I met these guys there that were the park service biologists. And I thought, wow, what kind of job is that? So your whole job is to study mountain goats. I was on a mountain goat project to study mountain goats or, or bears or Roosevelt elk or whatever. So that really kind of opened my eyes. But the kicker was that pushed me away from being a wildlife veterinarian more towards being a wildlife biologist was we were... Trying to figure out ways to uh, sterilize mountain goats because they were invasive, but the park didn't want to kill the mountain goats, and the and the and the mountain goats were wrecking the park's environment because they weren't native to there. They were introduced for hunting in oh, the 20s okay. before it was a park. They proliferated and they were basically just destroying the the high country and a lot of endemic plants. So the park service had to do something. So they were trying to find ways. Well, could they could they basically sterilize mountain goats? So. I was part of a team that went in with a bunch of veterinarians, wildlife veterinarians, um, to net them and we were gonna sterilize the goats. We ended up getting bad snow cover, cloud cover. We we ended up not being able to catch uh, very few goats. So we had a lot of time sitting around to talk. Long story short, these wildlife veterinarians their jobs didn't seem that great compared to <laughs> the part biologist job. So after that, I, I, after my sophomore year, I pursued a path. I, I tell you what, it wasn't until the last year of my PhD that I even considered to be a
0: professor. That's interesting. Yeah. I went
1: all the way through graduate school thinking that I was going to be a, a research biologist. I knew I wanted to do research. Right. But uh, it was the last year of my PhD when my PhD mentor, a guy named Michael Soule, and I was just talking to him and I thought, wow, here's a guy who is doing transformative, groundbreaking science that is changing the way people view conservation. And I thought, he can wake up on any given morning and pursue the topic that he thinks is most important. Most important, yeah. And nobody can tell him to shut up or not do that. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know how many other places you could do that. And good actually, time. that's what made me think at that point. Yeah. I thought, you know what? I'm going to still apply for agency jobs when I get, when I finish my PhD. But I think in the right university, this professor thing could be a good deal.
0: Maybe describe for our listeners what the core ideas in your research are. And yeah. I know you do a lot of stuff, but yeah. but I mean, what's, yeah. what's the fundamental concept yeah. that you're group has been working on. And, and I, what I'm curious about now is, where did that come from? Yeah. Where did that idea come yeah. from? Where, yeah. How did you start thinking about that?
1: Yeah, well, so, I, uh, you know, my, my sort of one sentence is, is, that, is that my research group uses any tool we can get our hands on. We like to use computational tools, genetic tools, field research to find new ways to understand how animal populations respond to human stressors and then what can we do to help animal populations persist in the face of human-caused stressors? And so, you know, it's, 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 it's wildlife population ecology is, is, the, is the three-word phrase for it. But, yeah, it's sort of just using different disciplines to understand how, uh, how, how wildlife populations are responding to, uh, to various stressors. And so that's been really fun because it's ended up taking me, you know, down some pretty deep paths into some sort of mathematical approaches to thinking, well, it turns out all, all management actions are not created equal in how they would help recover, say, endangered species, or reduce the numbers of pest species. So that's been, that, that's been fun. It's been fun uh, bringing together uh, genetics and ecology in ways that hadn't really been brought together very well. When I first started as a PhD student, as a young professor, uh, Geneticists did their thing and ecologists did theirs and there was really very little discussion about that. That's been a real thread of our work is to bring those fields together. So there's been lots of fun stories, but the biggest, the biggest one right now uh, is in this whole question of what might be the scope for animals to be able to adapt to rapid human-caused climate change. Right, and, so uh, in
0: time, yeah. evolutionary change, real, real, real time, real time, yeah. while we're while we're yeah. doing the observations in the field, we're seeing uh, very specific species, yeah. Ptarmigan, yeah. uh changing the times in which they molt and change from colors. brown to white, yeah, on yeah. the basis of distinct changes. Your 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 lab is arguing in climate,
1: yeah, and and you know this is one of these areas where different fields have been brought to bear because. Even just 15 years ago, even 20 years ago, when people, when scientists taught evolution to students, it was in the section on fossils or <laughs> right, maybe right. speciation. Right, right. Like evolution is what happens over millions of years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, one of the biggest transformations, transformational insights in the last 20 years has been the realization that meaningful adaptive changes can happen in just the span of three, five, 10 generations. So evolutionary changes can happen on ecological time. And so, uh, you know, that's not to say that evolution can rescue everything uh, and, that, and, that, and that evolution will take care of everything like some magic bullet, but that's become a big thread of our research as we think about, yeah, like you said, using these animals that we study that turn from being brown in the summer to white in the winter, and now we see them more and more being white light bulbs hopping around on a brown snowless background and it brings, it brings to mind the question, what's the consequence of that for the animal? What's the consequence of that for the species persistence? And then what are the potential strategies that they might be able to deploy through evolution and through behaviors that they could make it through it? So this has been an enormously exciting in the last decade um, uh, sort of area of bringing together disciplines and students th- thinking about this topic.
0: How'd you come to the University of Montana? Uh,
1: because of my interest, uh, Montana has long been on my radar. Had long been on my radar as just a magnificent place uh, to be. Uh, actually, I had worked at the National Bison Range the summer I graduated from college, so I knew a little bit about Missoula. I knew about Western Montana. The real quick story is: as undergraduate in uh, back east, where I grew up in North Carolina, master's in Utah, PhD started in Michigan, moved with my advisor to Santa Cruz, UC university of california santa cruz and then finished the phd had an opportunity to be a sabbatical replacement slash postdoc at uh, university of idaho and applied to lots of jobs that i didn't get a that i didn't get any nibbles on and then i had a amazing little period where i got a series of several different interviews and even several different offers at the same time and uh uh, the hardest decision was I had an offer at University of Queensland in oh. Australia and then um, and then an offer here at University of Montana, and I was really excited by Montana. Had a talk with Dan Pletcher, who was the program chair at the time, and was super excited by his enthusiasm, and so that's how I came here. But yeah. the,
0: the lure of Montana is no joke.
1: The, lo- the lure I mean, of Montana it's, it's, is no joke. You that's, see it, I mean, your right,
0: field yeah. in particular, of course, because right out your back door are are unbelievable stretches of wilderness to go study and and get out into the field with very low logistics i mean and for someone like me who's not studying it just going hiking and and boating and and skiing uh it's amazing but for someone who's trying to track down elusive uh animals and, and set traps uh to to uh, record them. It, it, what an incredible resource to have right in your backyard. Well, that's
1: try. Right. It's an incredible resource, and it makes you end up surrounding you with incredible people. Mm-hmm. Faculty, undergraduates, and especially graduate students. Yeah, you know, the quality of graduate students that we have here. Unbelievable, and this, you know my graduate students. Two of them are NSF, you know, graduate fellows. I mean, you know, they're they, they, these are you know these are these are students that literally could have gone anywhere. They were competitive to, for positions and even being recruited for positions everywhere, yeah. and they picked here. Yeah. So
0: tell me a little bit about your philosophy of graduate education. Why is graduate education important? Why is it important to a public university like University of Montana?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's the way that we it's the way that we put young people at the top of a field. We have this enormous amount of of, of knowledge and wisdom that we build up in certain fields, and so it's this opportunity to uh, train students to be be at the very top of their game in terms of both knowledge, in terms of in my in my case, uh, in terms of both understanding lots of really important, non-intuitive, surprising biological ideas, but also thinking about how do you implement those? How do you actually help save the world or help make the world a better place by implementing the science that you learn? So without that sort of intensive uh, focused training of graduate school, you wouldn't have people that are making the transformative breakthroughs that, that uh, make a big difference.
0: Yeah, and in your particular field, so I mean, I'm not sure, for example, every STEM field would would say Something like you just said about changing the world, right? Making an impact on the world. So maybe talk a little bit more about that part of your graduate education. How does that? How do you? How do you cultivate that set of values or ideas that are important to conservation biology?
1: You know, so first of all, uh, I always pass on to my students that you have to understand the basic science. And so, uh, you know, basic science, whether it be biology or math or physiology are all really critical to, to making the uh, applications to, say, conservation. So uh, that's very much a part of it. You have to become the very best biologist that's around. But also, you have to have, uh, you, you wouldn't do it if you don't also have this sort of commitment and excitement about seeing those insights make a difference. And so uh, I think, you know, we just sort of pre-select the students that do that, which is good that they're pre-selected for that because it's really hard work, right? As we say, you know, you've got to be, you've got to do all the things that you would do with basic biology. You've got to, you've got to shine in terms of your mastery of basic biology and math and genetics and evolution and ecology and all these pieces. But then you also have to understand how do you, connect it to uh, through policy. You have to understand think about laws or policy or or how do you communicate the ideas to a general public or to a manager or to somebody who's in the logging industry or who's uh, animal rights group, you know. Yeah, all right. those
0: pieces. Well and that's that's a great point and I, I think it kinda underscores one of the things we hear in the graduate school or kinda have our eye always on, which is the interdisciplinary component oh, yeah. of so many of our fields. Yeah. That, you know, there's these specializations that you you have to have, right? You have right. to have specialization yep. in yep. content master in a given discipline. Yep. But yet we find at kind of the higher level uh, of a field, you also need to have this other set of skills. Yeah. How yeah. do you cultivate that in the graduate students? Do your graduate students go take courses in other departments? Are they, are they out in the law school? Are they out in public policy? Or are they picking it up through research or collaboration or contacts?
1: Yeah, sort of all, all of the above. And you know, anymore, I think, in, in the sciences, and maybe in, in many disciplines, um, it, it, it's almost becoming such that the specializations are becoming so deep, but the interdisciplinarity is becoming so uh, critical that a lot of what you do is, you know, what I find myself sort of working with students to trained to do is learn people how to find trusting relationships mm. with people in other fields learn enough about that field to be able to build a trusting relationship and, uh, and, and, and uh, because you're, you're never gonna be able to go a mile deep in yeah. these different areas, but what you do is you come up with trusted collaborators yeah. um, and, 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 uh, and go that way. What do you think,
0: um, you know, a graduate student coming today into your program What's the biggest challenge they're gonna face based on you know, changes mm. in the field and what's
1: ahead, and what's the biggest opportunity? What, what do you, what's your biggest hope for a student and what their outcome might be? You know, I think the, the, the biggest challenges are that we, that uh, is mastering lots of different disciplines to the appropriate depth, and uh, also thinking about the challenges to science itself and thinking about how do we continue to make science relevant you know that's another place people, students are being pulled. In addition uh, to sort of all the different scientific disciplines, is now we have to start asking ourselves, well, geez, should how much time should we be spending blogging and tweeting right. and 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 podcasting yeah, and yeah. making films? I mean, and all that takes time. And so those I think are the biggest challenges: is figuring out all the different ways of both mastering your craft and communicating that craft and implementing what you learn to the world and and for those of us that do applied things, but that also immediately becomes the greatest opportunity as well. Because if you can't master those things, boy, you really can make a difference. You really can make a difference, whether it's in policy, whether it's in education, whether it's in um, uh, new ways of, of viewing the world. What do you expect to see in terms of the growth and maturity of a graduate student
0: over the course of your time working with him or her?
1: Well, I mean, I sum it up for PhD students is I want them to basically be kicking my butt by the time they graduate. <laughs> you, yeah. Know, yeah. you know, I want to I sort of feel humbled and uh, hopefully not humiliated, <laughs> uh, humbled, but I want to feel humbled and like, wow, okay, so they're really they're thinking about this in ways that, that I have never and maybe could never think about it, Yeah. Uh, yeah. then you know you, you really you've really succeeded. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, and you know, in the, at the master's level, um, uh, you, know, you just wanna see, see them, them grow and, and that's such a beautiful thing to, to see, is you know, to see they came in, maybe they were nervous about public speaking, maybe they didn't like math, maybe they uh, thought there was no way they could ever develop their own research idea and yet, by golly, there they are giving their talk and they're yeah. being articulate and they're telling a compelling story of their research. And, and uh, so yeah, you just wanna see that progress. There's kind of, a, kind of a leadership component to what you do, right?
0: There's a, a way in which you project uh, a set of values and mm-hmm. you both select for those values and then you reinforce them. Yeah. Uh, do you think of yourself kind of in that way as a leader
1: figure? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're asking a lot from people. Yeah. So you're asking people potentially to move a long way away, come to come here to give up a lot more money they could make doing something else, to work a lot more hours than they would do something else, to put themselves in an uncomfortable place cuz now suddenly they're not the smartest kid in the room. Yeah, right. Um and you know maybe they're in an uncomfortable position physically, they're collecting data, maybe they're 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 pushing themselves physically, maybe they're Doing tedious things, because that's after all what a lot of the best data are—is just the same tedious thing repeated again and again. So you're asking people to a do lot, a lot, yeah. and so I feel like it really is important to um, to to make people feel inspired, because you know you could you could yell at people, that's not going to get them yeah, to work yeah. the long hours and endure the tough conditions. But yeah, so I mean I think there's a lot of sort of you know just sort of helping the fire burn that people have, and. Um, and letting people know that they're appreciated, letting people know they're part of a team, letting people know that things are gonna to be tough. And sometimes, you know, boy, they're gonna hit a, a wall and, and, and to be able to talk about it, uh, both with me and with the other people in the lab. And then that way people can help lift somebody up when they're in a tough spot. Yeah. So yeah, I think all of those all of those um, dynamics are really important. Yeah, building building a strong and resilient team, where yeah. each individual can kind of yeah, where people respect each other and they want to help each other out, and then you, that also uh, re- gets rewarded in the science because suddenly, geez, you know, I never really thought about you know the the, the things you think about with math. I was all I was, was totally intimidated with the math, but geez, maybe we could end up writing a paper where. The things that I'm thinking about from the data could end up intersecting with what you're thinking about. So it builds those blo- blossoming, uh, unexpected uh, new Connections synergies. And, yeah, yeah, synergies. Yeah, synergies, good.
0: Yeah. For you, what's what's at the top of the CV of failures? What's something you've done that that just didn't go well at all? And, and yeah. uh, no, it's, it's, you it's might a, have learned something deep from I guess. Yeah,
1: <laughs> no, it's a great question. And uh, ha- wearing my hats as an applied biologist, I have, what happened was finished. Finished grad school, uh, and when I finished grad school, um, I, you know, I I had been sort of working on the forefront of this field called population viability analysis. So this field that brings field data and math uh, together to help uh, predict to try to make predictions about about what most affects a species and what kinds of things can we do to most ensure that an endangered species will be around. So, um, you know, it's become very sophisticated now. It's, the field is still around, but it was just beginning when, when I was a PhD student and that was sort of a big deal that, that I worked on as part of my PhD was sort of developing that field. So when I finished as a brand new PhD student and I went to the University of Idaho, I got a call um, to ask me to, to be an expert witness on a court case about uh, the use of population viability analysis. And, and what is, the, what is the minimum standard that should be applied for agencies to be able to apply this field and be able to legitimately say that they've evaluated the options for management to in order to keep species around, to not cause species to go extinct. And so um, I thought, you know, I got this. And, uh, you know, I'm a recent PhD student, and I'm, you know, top of my game in PVA, and so... You know, I said, okay, you know, I, but I'd never written an expert declaration for, for a court case before, but I wrote what I thought was, you know, very clear language. I wrote, the, you know, the sophisticated things that needed to be written down about the models that could be used and the genetic information and the ecological information that would be needed and the mathematical framework to tie it together. And I wrote that in what I thought was, you know, approachable language without jargon. Worked on it a long time. But, but, but I, I, I know that I wrote a sentence that said, you know, there are also rule of thumb approaches that can be used to make viability decisions as well. Well, the rule of thumb was within the context of, you know, sort of in the, in the scientific discussions, you know, we had these very narrow sideboards of, you know, you, if you have information on population size or population fluctuations, then you can use those to sort of guide you in rule sets. To uh, to make these kinds of decisions without the really fancy computer models. Well, so I wrote that sentence and I thought, oh, great! I did a good job of making everything approachable. Sent it to the lawyer, went to court. Then I'm on campus like 10 years later, and I'd got Lynn Broberg over environmental studies, a buddy of mine, and he teaches in the realm of policy and court cases. And uh, we we're just talking one day, and he goes, Scott, you know, I'm teaching about you. You, I was talking about you in my class today. Oh, great. Yeah, I was pretty much talking about how, how your court declaration, you know, set back viability analysis for you know it's now a precedent that's been hugely <laughs> damaging to the use of science in making land management decisions. I went, oh my gosh, Lynn, what? And he said, he said, uh, he said, yeah, he said that they took your whole declaration, they plucked that one sentence out of your declaration, and the judge used it exactly the opposite of how you intended it. Meaning so, you
0: don't need any of the science. Exactly. You, you can kind of use, and yeah. and this would be, I mean, in the in your field, this would be empowering local managers to make decisions. Yeah, and
1: and I'm all by for rule empow- of thumb. Yeah, and I'm words. all for empowering local managers, and you know that's a lot of what I do is try to think about how to how to make science accessible. But in that particular case, it basically got yeah, it basically got misused to say that actually you don't need any science, just whatever anybody thinks is good is good. Yeah, yeah. So it sort of obviated the entire process of using science. And, and so, you know, that taught me something very profound. First of all, it took me down a few notches. Um, and actually, I'd heard that before he, even when I talked to Lynn. I didn't know the extent of it. But it took me down a few notches in, in thinking that, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a scientist. I am a good writer. Therefore, I can write a legal brief right. and, and make it, you know, it made, it made me realize that there's you know, a real skill there. There's guess, a real right? skill, whether it's for a lawyer or it's a science communication person or it's a journalist, yeah. you know, that, uh, that we should try to work in other people's worlds and, and, and communicate with other people, but never underestimate uh, the, the skill that it takes to craft yeah. an article in the Atlantic or to, uh, yeah. or, 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 or to write a, a court brief. And so that, that taught me an important lesson.
0: We actually haven't talked about this, and we have to. Um, the international component of
1: your work—how did that evolve? Oh, yeah. How did oh, you yeah. end
0: up? How did you end up working, <laughs> oh. and what countries you work in, and oh. how did that unfold? Okay.
1: So actually, that brings up another uh, CV of failure. Actually, point. <laughs> great. Because actually, I totally screwed it up when I started uh, international work. I uh, had traveled a little bit internationally, but I never worked. Had never had any experience working internationally came here as a brand new professor. uh, And I had a student that was interested in working in the Philippines on fruit bats. So I basically thought, well, I'll just write people and say, I'd like to come study fruit bats in the Philippines. I'd find professors in the Philippines and say, I want to come show up. Well, of course, that's a really terrible way to go about doing things. You know, it, it was, it was as if I was, forcing myself. It was as if I was the American that was going to come in and save the species or show them how to do the science. None of that was in my mind. That was not my intent and not in my heart. But that's how it came across when I wrote and said, dear so-and-so, I'd like to start a project in the Philippines. Can you help me get started? You know, whatever. And um, uh, so I got smacked down and, you know, nicely, uh, as I recall. Nobody was nasty to me, but basically they're like, you know, get lost. Who are you? <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. We don't trust you. We don't know who you are. Eventually, she did a very nice master's. Actually, stayed on for a PhD and did some very nice work on Continue fruit bats from the Philippines. Yeah. Okay. That so that was my first international project. She so kind of learned, and the then rules I started about... learning. Yeah, I started learning the rules and What's started the right what was
0: first it? email? Um, Dear so and so, I've read your wonderful study on. You know. Well, uh, that
1: maybe yeah, or is there you know? Would there be any potential? Uh, you know, to collaborate, yeah. or how might I be able to help capacity build? Like, you know, everything that we've been able to do in Bhutan has been from coming at it with that with that, uh, uh, with that that attitude, and it's been amazing. Work so has Bhutan.
0: Bhutan been your most successful yes. test case? Yes. And how many yes. students have been run
1: through that? Um, four, and I spent sabbatical there in 2010, uh, took the whole family over. You know, but not very many that... The, the Bhutanese don't allow very many, there's not very many yeah, people very that can work restricted there. Yeah, yeah, because they, they're, they're, they're a country one-eighth the size of of Montana that has never been conquered, never. Yeah. And they're squashed between China and India. Right. And so they're not about to be conquered now. And so they have a huge radar, a very acute radar about uh, even scientists that want to conquer them or NGOs that want to, to uh, gotcha. come take over. Uh, you know, it's been a, a magnificent relationship and, uh, you know, that has taught me an awful lot. I mean, I'd learned a lot of those lessons before I started in Bhutan, but it was the ability to take those lessons and apply them of saying, look, what I want to do is help. And if eventually something comes along that, um, that is sort of scientifically exciting or something, great. But just coming in with that respect and humility. I think that is the biggest key for, for international work. And now
0: you have international collaborators all over, all over the place, yeah, yeah. right? You have some in,
1: in Scandinavia, S- right? Scandinavia, Scotland, um, yeah, various parts of Europe on projects. Um, and two years ago, I had a postdoc from Russia. I had a grad student from Czech Republic. I had a visiting grad student from Pakistan. I had a student from India and two Bhutanese students. But that was all here in Missoula, Montana. Yeah, that was yeah. the graduate group.
0: That's cool. Um,
1: Yeah, so it's been really rewarding, and of course two-way, so much. I've learned so much. My other grad students have learned so much. Undergraduates learn so much. There's so many benefits that come from from being globally engaged.
0: Okay, we're going to end with a few quick rapid fires. Okay. What's your favorite winter activity?
1: I love to ski, cross-country and and, uh, downhill ski. I really like to duck hunt, so that's oftentimes middle of winter as well. Yeah, yep. yeah. Morning or night portion? Morning.
0: Bitter, Bitterroot or Clark Fork River? Bitterroot. Sunrise or sunset?
1: Sunrise. Bitterroot's
0: Pintlers or Mission Mountains?
1: Yeah. <sighs> yeah, see, okay, now you're getting tough, but um, uh, uh, I guess I'm gonna have to go Bitterroot. Yellowstone or Glacier? Mmm. Mmm. Well, I'm gonna go Yellowstone. All right. Winter, yeah. or summer? I'm
0: gonna say winter.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah.
0: This has been fantastic. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, uh, I thanks we for got the
1: a chat. Lot of good stuff. It's awesome. Covered a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed your time floating on the river of knowledge with us. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a like on SoundCloud and stop by the University of Montana Grad School website at www.umt.edu/grad for more episodes and videos highlighting our amazing graduate students.